Welcome to FemCon, the podcast series imagining new feminist constitutions for Ireland and Northern Ireland. So I think there's multiple ways in which feminist science fiction utopias can help us think about constitutions. The forefront of my role is almost to be that kind of like artistic provocateur for possibilities. Hi, my name is Aoife O'Donoghue and I'm a professor at Queen's University Belfast um, and I research on feminism, feminism and law, feminist constitutionalism and feminist international law. My name is Marae Denwright. I'm professor of feminist legal studies at the University of Birmingham and I generally work on issues in gender and the law, particularly um, reproductive rights and historical injustice. Over the course of the series, you will hear conversations from our colleagues in the Feminist Constitutions Project. And this podcast isn't just about academics. Along the way, we will hear from activists, artists, campaigners and policymakers, all with a particular interest in contributing to a better future for everyone on this island and in its diaspora. So as a podcast series, we have reflections and debates and conversations on reimagining a new constitution for Ireland and for Northern Ireland um, and what a feminist constitution might look like in that context. So we'll be discussing constitutions, how they're written, how we imagine them, what we'd like to see in them, what we'd not, what's important to talk about in a constitution that covers, you know, thinks about those two jurisdictions and what the futures across Ireland and Northern Ireland might be, particularly at this moment in time where it's it's a conversation that people are having. And then what we mean by a feminist constitution, how do you, how do feminists go about writing them? How do we go about, you know, once we've written them, what do we do with them then? And what do we do with them as they grow and develop? So today's episode focuses on utopias and imagination. We're going to be looking to literature, art, the general humanities for sources of inspiration for our methods of feminist drafting that we're going to use in this project. So we're going to talk first to uh, Dr. Ruth Houghton, who's an academic at Newcastle University. She works on law and humanities, and she's going to be talking to us about uh, science fiction, speculative fiction and manifestos. Later, we're going to talk to Jessie Jones, a feminist artist from Dublin, whose work is always imaginative, speculative, and often informed by debates, ongoing debates in constitutional law. Both have really interesting things to tell us about law and different ways of imagining law's pasts and futures. Hello, my name is Ruth Houghton. I'm a lecturer at Newcastle Law School. My research is broadly situated within global constitutionalism and international law. And I use law and literature methodologies and feminist theories to interrogate the idea of democracy and constituent power within those areas of law. Thank you so much, Ruth, for agreeing to come here and talk to us today. We're really, really delighted that you're you're happy to come and chat to us at FemCon. Thank you ever so much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversations today about utopias and constitutionalism. I know exactly just how good uh, Ruth is at explaining the kind of issues around utopianism that are so important to the FemCon project. So with that, I'll jump off. What do you think the function of, of utopian thinking is generally for anybody, not a, well beyond law and constitutionalism? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the key for utopian thinking in terms of its functions is about cognitive estrangement, a concept termed by Darko Suvin. This estrangement can often be found in the genre of science fiction um, and the science fiction utopias work by taking the reader outside of their current environment. These utopias allow the reader to look back and critique their current and present reality, but they also open up the possibilities for a different future, a future that is not constrained by that present that they currently sit and live within. Now that estrangement works to bring into 
to question the very naturalness or the inevitability of the present social, legal and political order. And in that sense, then makes an alternative much more possible. And hope is really important for the feminist utopias as well. Utopias can work to inspire and mobilize. And indeed, theorists Walida Imrashara and Adrienne Marie Brown prefer to use the term visionary fiction rather than utopian fiction in order to encapsulate that idea of the organizing and mobilizing potential that science fiction and utopian literature can have for minority groups and people of color. I think that kind of goes against sort of the traditional sort of idea of science fiction being about like white nerdy men. Um, and actually it's about something much more and really political, really political. I mean, most science fiction, I think, is really political and reflects a huge amount about society, even if something as mundane as Star Trek, you know, that has utopianism, but often is just talking about ourselves and today. Where do you think people should go off and find these these utopias? Absolutely. I think we traditionally turn to the literary utopias, the stories, the novels. We might start by thinking about Thomas More's Utopia as the canonical example of a utopian story. Kathy Weeks, who's an eminent Marxist feminist, actually argues that there are different forms of utopian writing that we can see from literary utopias, manifestos, and what she calls utopian demands, calls for reform that, you know, seem so radical and have such radical potential. And her example is wages for housework. I think crucially, and in projects that we've worked on together, we have seen feminist manifestos as a form of utopian thinking, that they form part of this continuum of utopias because they're cause for such radical departure from the political and the legal present, offer us these possibilities of alternative futures. And I suppose that sort of answers the, the why women write them. I mean, if you think about why women have written manifestos, there is this upsurge of feminist manifestos in the 70s as radical feminist groups use them to outline their demands. And then it dies away. But we see this resurgence or revival of the feminist manifesto today in popular publishing, whether it's the classicist Mary Beard's manifesto or the actresses Michaela Cole's Misfits. Even Booker Prize winner Bernadine Evaristo has her own manifesto. There seems to be something, you know, evocative about having a manifesto to, to outline your demands and potential reforms for the society we live in. But the manifesto as, a, as, a, as an attractive form for feminist writers seems to be about its non-deferential <laughs> status. It doesn't have to refer to an authority. It itself creates and demands an authority and an audience. Um, and whilst it can be ignored or not listened to, the very text itself um, cries out for um a voice gives voice to these demands but equally and i say there about feminists writing these manifestos the accessibility of the manifesto form is such that it can be in art in poems in letters through performance we've looked at examples in drama and plays that that, that have been performed where the audience participates in the creation of that manifesto in that moment so it's an accessible form so i suppose moving on to, to constitutions and the project so what do you think that like 
these kind of utopian works can help us think about? So I think there's multiple ways in which feminist science fiction utopias can help us think about constitutions. I think the first and what we did in our initial project was to read feminist science fictions through a constitutionist lens. If we come to those stories with constitutional questions in mind, what can they tell us about what community means um, or a community that underpins a constitution? What can they tell us about the public-private divide and the way in which constitutional law constructs such divisions. What they show us I think is that theories of constitutionalism that underpin specific constitutions are often built on the experiences of white men um, and the theories of constitutionalism, the experiences of white global north men at the expense of the experiences and, and interests of women. In the project, we looked at two theory, two ideas, I guess, that you might say, what can they tell us about constitutions? And that is community and the public-private divide. The feminist utopian narrative shed light on the importance importance of community, but they offer a myriad of different ways to construct those communities. In that res- in that sense, they can challenge the idea of constitutionalism predicated on a nation state as ne- being necessary to underpin the community, because they talk about communities of sisterhood and shared experiences and kinship. And that's really important for our project around the idea of challenging the nation state, because, you know, we're, we're doing a cross-jurisdictional project and we're not basing ourselves on any kind of particularly nation state type outcome. So like for us, I think that's in FemCon, that's really a really important, uh, important idea. But also then how you get to that, how do you get to that kind of constitutional change? Absolutely. I think that's one of the important things that we noted in the project was the kind of ways in which these feminist utopias often explicitly address what happens when two communities meet one another as well. And the technologies that they talk about being predicated on communication and listening and learning um, from the community that has that has been introduced you know, partway through the narrative. What would be the key lessons for bringing about a feminist constitutional future? Do you think from like how do we how do they tell us how to do it? Do you think in many ways I think. You know, the, the, the power of feminist utopian fiction is in the process rather than in the substance. You know, we can read these texts and some of them are really problematic in terms of what they call for. They can be essentialist, racist, imperialist. So it's less about looking to the substance and saying, oh, we should use that technology to bring about that constitutional future um, and more about what they tell us about the processes of constitutional change. These feminist utopias can talk to us about our understanding of constituent power, for example. Constituent power is that power to change the constitutional order. And traditionally, this has been located within those persons at constituent assemblies. And of course, historically, they have been white and male and women have been absent from those constitutional moments. But the feminist science fiction utopias show us a almost a narrative of shared power. There are non-hierarchical relationships between constituent power holders and the structures that they create. They realize the active engagement of women in the evolution of the constitutional order in which they are living. And crucially, that constitutional moment, often understood in constitutional theory as a one-off moment in the past, is broken apart in these feminist science fiction utopias. One of the crucial ways 
ways in which that is done is about excavating the stories and experiences that are often forgotten about when we build a myth of the constitutional moment. So these stories sometimes can be nodal in the sense that they build on chapters of different women's experiences to put together a grander narrative, telling us about the different ways in which individuals, groups and communities might see that constitutional moment very differently and have called for different different um, structures, but they've been sidelined and ignored. And it's our duty to then excavate as feminist constitutional scholars. So on that basis, so, you know, if, if we can get this much from them, what should people go and read? You know, they, you know we're not going to make them go read some constitutional textbook. Like we're saying, you're better off reading some feminist science fiction utopia, right? So what ones would you say? Yeah, excellent question. I think if we're thinking about which science fiction utopias you should go and read, I guess my starting point would be the 1905 short story um, by Roikia Hussein, which is Sultana's Dream, which describes a world where men live in Perda and women are leaving active public lives. So that you know, role reversal, but also telling us and reflecting on the construction of the public-private divide is a very early um, kind of utopian feminist um, short story. The other thing that I would probably recommend is reading them alongside each other. So crucially, there are two ones that I'd recommend. Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omalas from 1973. Read that and compare it with N.K. Jameson's The Ones Who Stay and Fight from 2016. What these short stories in tandem try to illuminate is the harms that sit at the core of utopian projects. If we can read feminist science fiction as constitutional uh, text or something that talks to us about constitutions, can we read constitutions as utopian texts? Can they um, elicit a utopian past, if you like, where they were calling for a different future? And if that's true, then these short stories where harm is ever present at the core of a society and it's about our responses to that harm, tell us something about the way in which we need to react and respond to the harms that are encased within the constitutional order. Yeah, so I think I think we both have our our own favourites, and and I think that what's been really lovely in the last few years has been sort of the focus on like Afrofuturism, particularly in African um, science fiction. It's really good at pushing you out of sort of like presumptions of of um, what, what how things should be and how how we frame things and the, the impact that we have around the world. And of course, there's, there are, there are many many more. Uh, if you want something, I would say fairly subversive, Naomi Alderman's The Power is well worth a read um, from a because I think you were touching on like, who's utopia if existing constitutions are utopian like were we living in, in Dev's utopia or Craig's utopia it's just not this China Mel- Melville's line um, who is both a international lawyer and a science fiction and he has a line where he says we all live in a utopia it's just somebody else's utopia and I think that's a really important thing to think about when we look at the constitutions that exist like that is somebody's ideal it's just probably not a woman's ideal with very few exceptions but thanks so much Ruth we really really appreciate you you know taking the time and having chats with us and thanks a million Ruth thank you very much for having me
Jessie Jones is an Irish feminist artist of some renown. Um, her previous work includes Tremble Tremble, which represented Ireland at the Venice Biennale some years ago. She also took over the Hugh Lane Art Gallery uh, to establish a feminist parasite institution and the project was called No More Fun and Games. She was artist in residence at the King's Inns in Dublin, where barristers um, are trained uh, during COVID, during the lockdown. And she's done so much more. And Jessie's work isn't always explicitly about law or explicitly about constitutions, but I think law is always bubbling away there in the background. And I very much associate Jessie with a kind of a surge of feminist artwork of all kinds that was taking place, particularly around the constitutional referendum on abortion in Ireland um, and the repeal movement, uh, which um, led to the removal of the abortion prohibition from the constitution in 2018. I think it's fair to say Jessie's work isn't always utopian. Uh, Often it is engaging with very dark histories of women's oppression in Ireland and elsewhere, but it is always imaginative and speculative and it is always going, I suppose, in source or in search of new sources of for the legal imaginary, for the feminist legal imagination. So that's why I was really hoping to talk to Jessie um, about our project. So welcome, Jessie. Thanks, Mairead. It's great to be here. And thank, yeah, thanks for thanks for being with us. Um, I thought we might start with one of your pieces where the reference to the constitution is maybe more direct than than in others. Um, so when you were the artist in residence at the King's Inns, you worked with um, the activist Maureen de Burka and you produced a sculpture uh, which was on display in the Inns building itself. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that was and what it, what it looks like even? Yeah, so it's actually um, in response to the architectural site itself, the King's Inn, as you said, I was artist in residence that then became uh, locked in to the King's Inn during COVID, which was quite an epic experience to be the only access to the grounds and the building during that period of time. And to see time creep back into the fabric of the building, you know, within within weeks of students not passing through, the grass was growing up between the cracks in the ground. And I was spending a lot of time in the King's Inn and I became very taken with the Thomas Kirk um, sculpture in the grounds, which you might be familiar with. It's an image of three fates, uh, Hibernia, Industry and Commerce that sit in in, in um, that stand at their station in front of, of the building itself. But one was as I was walking through the building every day, I noticed that one of the um, arms were missing and um, the, the left arm of commerce was missing. And this really struck me as a kind of at first kind of a humorous thing. You know, of course, they would, you know, leave a woman with no arm and nobody does anything about it for years and years. But it had always been quite an important part of my work um, in, in other capacities. I always had this very strong fascination with the metaphorical role of the arm and particularly the sculptural arm of women on on public statues and you know if a man's arm was taken off a public statue it would be replaced overnight I imagine but um you know you can see from from things like the Venus de Milo that it becomes a fetishized armless object then I contacted uh, Maureen um, because I had always been very interested in her her legacy as a radical litigant in, in challenging the law and challenging the state in particularly in relationship to the rights for women to sit on juries and the Juries Act in the 70s. So I just started working with 
uh, Maureen. And at the very beginning, you know, the object in the arm that would become the tool, the left hand tool of commerce, I had no idea what Maureen would pick. It was really up to her. I didn't know whether it was going to be a mug of tea or, you know, a dog lead. It could have been anything. But Maureen was very insistent when we first met that she felt that the tool that she would elect to be the feminist tool of the, of the law that would replace this missing tool um, would be her copy of the Constitution. I feel like there is a strategy in my work um, in, in quite a few instances, in particular in Tremble Tremble, which was the National Pavilion in mm. in 2017, which is what, what I describe the methodology as Trojan horse, Trojan horsery. So, you know, you get this opportunity to create an artwork through an institution. And I suppose this relates to a work that I did in the Hugh Lane as well is what can you do within that institution that could just chip away? I don't think it's a, it's it's not I wouldn't say it's it's about redressing or redefining, but it's almost like becoming a critical friend or, a, you know, a provocateur within a space. Right. But I suppose one of the most important motivations obviously was to create a, a, a representation in the absence of a feminist litigant but also to mm. create a monument within the building for someone who would actually become known for breaking the law but when you say like feminist legal are we doing this like what are we doing the same thing or what is your idea of like the feminist legal approach that you're you're trying to think about I think imagination is a really important, not imagination, but imagine the imaginary is an important part of the feminist legal from my perspective. And I'm sure it is for yours also. But if we think about the imaginary from the idea of glissant as a shared space where possibility is latent and can be activated into mm. an action within the world. So I, I feel like that's, that's you know, the, the forefront of my role is to almost to be that kind of like artistic provocateur for possibilities. And I don't want that, that to sound too utopian, but I see that it's merging into that space. And so it, it is a really radical action to kind of say, well, there are others who deserve to be commemorated. And some of those are the, you know, the difficult people, the the activists, the ones who insisted on certain kinds of rights provisions uh, for women and for marginalized people, often at great personal cost. So that's that's amazing. There is a key and central female figure in Tremble Tremble, who's kind of a witch giantess played by Alwyn Fiore. And was Tremble Tremble, was the giantess, was that an attempt to assert an alternative constitution or was it something else entirely? Yeah, I suppose the the, the thing about um, the giantess and the, the composite between the witch and the giantess was really inspired by the Eighth Amendment itself, actually. And the Eighth Amendment as a, as a piece of, as a description of um, constitutional subjectivity, I felt was very Lilliputian in terms of describing the fetus as having like equal rights to the the mother. And at the time, I I had I had always said, you know, I am representing my country at a time where I feel my country doesn't represent me. So that was the opening caveat to whatever artwork was made. It was made in the context of almost again like that parasite methodology 
or the Trojan horse methodology, where the staging and the time of the work is as important as what the artwork ends up being itself as well. Tremble Tremble was really about having that moment where you were conjuring the possibility for such seismic shifts in, in um, constitutional subjectivity that they would veer into the surrealist and the imaginary as well. Like, why not, you know? Like, we don't just want constitutional change. We want the entire fabric of our relation to, like, the world to change. So it's, it's, I suppose it's a place where, where art is so different than law in this one respect, which is that what's at stake is everything, because the imagination has all, it is like, in a way, a roadmap to where we can go, you know? What would you say, bearing in mind, you know, what, what, what would you, like, what can artists teach law, uh, teach lawyers about whether it matters if things actually come to pass in the space of the state? There is a huge transformation in the process that is inevitable, which is that the people involved, the participants ourselves, we deeply change through that process. And I think we as political and artistic and legal actors have to be transformed by the process that we develop and we imagine for ourselves. And that transformation and that regeneration of our imagination and that regeneration of our practices and our relational qualities between each other. It's it's forging a sense of community and it's forging a sense of, of community in a radical way, in a way that we're not dealing with the, the relational status quo as it is, but we're actually jumping into another space of, you know, an avant-garde, of like something that's ahead of what actually already exists. So for me, you know, as an artist, those kind of moments of, of political or artistic imagination have changed art forever. And I don't see why that same dynamic can't change law forever. One of the things that's very interesting to us in this project is, for example, we may be standing on the threshold some people say at least, of a new constitutional future as regards the two jurisdictions, Northern Ireland and, and, and the Republic. But very few people are talking about writing a brand new constitution for what comes, perhaps because it's too early to do that. Like, Should we be seeking to have a, a set of rules that governs us for all time or how are there artistic methods for resolving that problem? So something in art that would be similar to the constitution is something we would call the canon, which is when you go into a space where you are no longer considered, you know, or doubted, you become wholly ordained as like an artist who shows in museums, maybe you're in big collections and you enter into the, 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 the books of art history, which is called the canon. So I suppose art history is also a very patriarchal tool. So I wouldn't advise that we, that we use art history, but perhaps art practices. Um, and I think looking at how artists practice, which is how artists practice, you know, there's nothing mysterious or mythic about it. We go into the studio every day and we experiment and we make work and we fail. And, you know, sometimes um, things happen that are happy accidents, but there's no master plan. And um, it's a it's a um, airing rather than a kind of it's a wandering process. Mm. We're wandering through. We're kind of pathfinding as we go. So if 
if the concept if the constitution has anything to learn from art practice it's that improvisation and embodiment are actually the the only way we can we can make art and the only way perhaps we can make a constitution that is representative is that it is transformative at all times and it is part of everyday life um, and it is responsive you're very good at like playing in the margins and very good at enacting alternatives in the margins. And you've used lots of different words to describe how you do that. You know, the Trojan horse, the witch, bewitching the space and the, the parasite. And I wanted to ask, you know, do you think in this project we should aim to be witches or parasites or Trojan horses or Maureen de Burka? Or is there a, a particular embodiment you think we should attach ourselves to or how should we negotiate that? I, I think it's, you know, it's very interesting to think about those. I've always been fascinated by those kind of mythic uh, subjects, the witch, the the parasite was always fascinating to me because, you know, the the parasite in Michelle Serre's philosophy, you know, it, it's the, the entity that can enter the host to a point at which it it takes the resources from the host, but potentially the host could die and the parasite can can take over the entire body of the host. So the parasite is ambitious. You know, it's not an unambitious thing to be a parasite, you know. It's it's also the witch and the parasite are also quite abject bodies. And I think the constitution historically has made women in this country feel like we were the abject bodies of the state. And I think there's nothing more powerful than being a self-described and declaring abject body on one's own terms. So I think we should do whatever we need to, to be disruptive, imaginative, parasitic, um, bewitching to this historical process that we're on the threshold to. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's a feeling that anything that we do might be, has the power to be ignored very much by the powers that be. However, like we described earlier, the, the thing that we can change is our relational uh, capacity with each other as a community in terms of how we occupy public space, how we occupy the public discourse and the historical time in everyday life through the playful um, adaptations we make in relationship to that. And if we if we can be a Trojan horse in this period of time to make something more ambitious than what the state imagines our, our next moment constitutionally to be, I think it's always important to, be, to use that space to be a provocateur to the, the, the abject possibilities of otherness. Amazing. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mairead. So Jessie started in my conversation with her by talking about the work she did with Maureen de Burka, who people might remember brought a really important case in the 1970s as an activist challenging the effective exclusion of women from juries and establishing this constitutional right to um, a representative jury trial, I suppose. Um, and Jessie talked about trying to reinsert women's history into very formal or conservative legal spaces like the King's Inns. Um, I don't know if you kind of caught her saying, or maybe you'd like to talk about that, the idea of like the missing arm of one of the fates sitting outside the King's Inn bu building, because that 
I kind of thought maybe that would catch your eye. Yeah, I really liked that bit about the arm and what she said about people not even noticing it, that if it was a man, they would have put it back on straight away. They would have fixed the statue. But that, that, that absence wasn't even seen, even though it had been there and had been recognized and then wasn't seen. I thought that was really interesting. I really related to what Ruth was talking about in the manifestos, like that manifestos in lots of ways are women, you know, sometimes reasserting power they had already claimed or reasserting power in spaces where they haven't, where they've never been acknowledged to have power at all and doing it in lots of really interesting ways. Yeah, I thought that reference to constituent power is really important because the King's Inns, if you do happen to go in, I'm not really sure how members of the public can go in if you're not a student there, if you're not a barrister, how often people get to have a look. But it is about a certain kind of constituent power. It's about judicial power. And certainly you do see more women on the wall now, even than when I was a student. But that's because more women have been judges since. What you don't see is people like Maureen de Burka, who got to challenge the constitution as it was because she had broken the law. We could be telling a very different history if we wanted to. And also that kind of, as you say in your conversation with Ruth, that um, every constitution is somebody's utopia, right? And so that Maureen is somebody who Jesse is choosing to memorialize, um, but who was living for many decades and still lives, I suppose, in a version of the utopia of, and we know it's not just Dev and McQuaid, but the many, primarily men, I suppose, are almost exclusively men who uh, were involved in uh, drafting the main elements of, of the 1937 constitution. And if you look at the UK and Northern Ireland, you, you can go even further back with that idea of who, who was doing it. And even in the 1998 agreement, like all the work of the women's coalition and how important they were and getting bits in and without them, you know, the Good Friday agreement, the Belfast agreement wouldn't look the way it does, but they're not often part of that even though they were there they're not part of that story that we tell and that the UK constitutional story is a you know it's a very long story often involving Ireland um, but a very very long story as well but again the same kind of story that you're talking about the story of sort of a succession of of men and then the few a few glorious women who acted like men and therefore were okay in both conversations in the conversation with Ruth and the conversation with Jesse I was really struck by both of them saying that Almost participation in ex constitutional experiments or artistic experiments is what matters. So Ruth was saying that, you know, manifestos often aren't and often aren't intended to be finally embodied in law. But the process of making them and of making them together and of participating collectively in producing a manifesto is its own transformation. And Jesse said, uh, quite similar things a few times when we were when we were um, having our conversation that you know the state isn't going to include you or isn't going to respond to you and that's not necessarily your main aim your main aim is to transform yourself to transform your subjectivity and um, and I was just wondering yeah how can we learn from that in in the project that we're kind of embarking on because that's really a tough thing when you're putting a putting the law at the center of your project and then at the same time being really skeptical of the law um, and, and doing those two things, which is a really feminist thing to do is to you know, be say laws and the solution and then trying to fix the law at the same time. Like le feminist law, legal theorists, we, we do that all the time. But I think they both, I suppose, in, in the way that they articulated, like described in a way that I think we we were struggling with about why we should do it anyway about why it's worthwhile anyway. And, uh, you know, in parts of the project, we've talked a lot about legal education, but I think from our perspective as well is, is in being exposed to Jesse's work and, you know, Jesse's work in early, earlier projects uh, and the feminist science fiction utopias and the manifestos, 
being provoked ourselves into rethinking what's possible and what we need to do and the value of something that may be ignored and who's ignoring it. And maybe we don't mind that they're ignoring it because it's a provo- it's more of an irritant to them. I think there's a constitutional term, pouvoir irritant, where you're just irritating the constitution. You're not actually changing it. And it's often used to sort of like dismiss various groups. But of course, if you're the group themselves, like being an irritant is a good in itself. You know, that, that that's worthwhile in itself. And that for us as a group and the big group, everybody in the group, being the value of being irritating and being a, a provocation or, as Jesse said, a Trojan horse, you know, being a gift that you might give to somebody. But then at the same time, that gift fundamentally changes the future and what happens. Like, you know, taking that on and not ex- not wanting almost the sort of main discourse to go, all oh, right, okay, they've, we're going to have a feminist constitution. Because we also all know in reality that if that happened, we would just all get co-opted and become nothing. And that maybe it's more valuable to be like the irritant and the provocateur. And obviously, as Irish people are very good at being ornery and awkward, it's a national trait. Yeah. So I thought what was, um, I've already forgotten the academic term that Ruth uses. It's cognitive... Dissonance or estrangement. Sorry, estrangement. Cognitive estrangement, right. So so it's cognitive estrangement. So as like when, when you kind of ask her at the beginning of your conversation, what's the kind of primary contribution of working with kind of science fiction and speculative fiction? She says it's that it's that cognitive estrangement. It's giving you the space to step away from not not so much what's real, but what's accepted, what seems difficult to challenge, what seems in, difficult to imagine otherwise, and giving yourself that kind of permission. Because I think, and I think this is one of the challenges of presenting the kind of project we're embarking on as a serious academic endeavor, because often lawyers are expected to produce a reform and a reform that is practically implementable and that takes account of a variety of pragmatic concerns. And of course, that work is really important. And lots of us who are involved in the project spend a lot of time in doing that work and in training other people to do it and in helping other people to do it. But I think what we're interested in and what we can learn from art and what we can learn from literature of the kind that we've been talking about in this episode is that it's good as well to let your imagination run riot. It's good as well to move away for a while from what's practicable, from what's likely, from what people will agree to in a referendum and think about all of the other possibilities that are often silenced. And so Jessie talks about like, I mean, all kinds of things, but she talks about her work as being a provocateur for possibilities. And as you say, like that means not only provoking others, but generating spaces where you can also be provoked by un- unexpected things. And I think as well, you know, we're not, it, in as far as we're being like inspired by utopian work or by work that learns from utopian traditions, we're not doing something that's entirely unrealistic. What we're doing is we're amplifying the stuff that gets suppressed, but that is still very much a part of um, Irish and Northern Irish and other uh, constitutional traditions. Jesse as well talked about uh, the idea of being a parasite on institutions. So being a parasite on the state or being a parasite on, like she talked about the canon in particular, in particular schools of art. And parasite is a really interesting idea because if you're a parasite, you know, you're teeny tiny and vulnerable, but you're also potentially very strong. You need the thing that you're living off, like in order to survive, but you may, you may ultimately destroy it. Um, And it's, there's something kind of simultaneously non-serious and very, very threatening about being a parasite. So I thought that kind of model of seeing, 
yeah, really thinking very carefully about the structures that we live in and how we can provoke them, how we can play with them, how we can reveal how plastic and flexible they actually are um, could be really interesting. And you often don't get that kind of space in legal scholarship, even feminist legal scholarship, because the demand to produce something plausible and something usable is usually overriding. And that's not to say that we won't produce things that are plausible or usable, but that maybe we're thinking about a wider range of plausibilities and a wider range of, of uses. I suppose maybe the the last question might be then, um, if, if there was something or one or two things that we might take away in terms of techniques or methods or habits from the kind of work that we were looking at in this episode and actually try to apply in a legal context. Did you have like one or two or favorites that kind of stood out to you from from your conversation with Ruth or from mine with Jesse? I think with Ruth, and it kind of goes back to something you just said about the idea of feasibility or plausibility, um, because feminist utopias and manifestos are often dismissed as being unfeasible, uh, as not, not, and about, when someone something somebody says something's unfeasible or implausible, why? What is it that makes it unfeasible? Is it because it's not within, you know, your utopian idea of the future? Is it not because it's just something we haven't like why what makes it unfeasible? Because part of what you know, what Mavel was saying about we we all live in somebody's utopia, that person's utopia became real. That was someone's dream. And someone's dream became real. And that, every, you know, feminist dreams can also, even if dismissed as unplausible or unfeasible or it can't do it, can actually become real. That we, we can't stop ourselves from imagining or because somebody tells us it's unfeasible or unplausible. I think, um, no, I think that's, that's, that's quite right. And yeah, to, to just constantly challenge or constantly foreground maybe the relationship between, between power and possibility. Um, and, and to constantly return to the history of how we actually ended up with the kinds of legal documents that, that govern us. I think as well, maybe something we haven't mentioned already, but maybe that we find very attractive about um, taking that kind of law and humanities perspective um, is is that kind of idea of like performance or narrative. So, um, you know, Jesse talks about this and Ruth talks about it too, um, the, the capacity that art and literature have to play with things that are actually very important to law, like emotion, belonging, how we become recruited into a particular order and what are the, what are the different social or emotional habits or practices that we have that keep us part of that order and keep us within it. Um, and perhaps that's a conversation, you know, that we do have a lot in feminist legal studies but maybe we don't try to actualize as much as we possibly could in the course of producing um, uh, our research. So uh, thinking more carefully about, um, I suppose, for, like the form that things take, what they look like, how they feel uh, is something that we're going to try and pay a bit more attention to than perhaps we've done in, in, other, in other different um, projects. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there are already discussions happening about whatever future there might be, you know, two jurisdictions, one jurisdiction, a jurisdiction and a bit that, you know, and it's, we need, I suppose uh, we need to engage in those kind of prefigurative discussions now, because we need to be there imagining that future and imagining a place, a feminist island where we can actually have uh, a constitution or constitutions that are places where women can be 
and exist and be their full selves. So that's sort of bringing it back, bringing all those lessons back from what's happened elsewhere, thinking about science fiction, thinking about it through art, thinking through discussions and thinking about how we do that here on the island across the two jurisdictions and together and collectively as as as, as just as feminists who are interested in, in, you know, imagining a better future for us all. Coming up in the next episode. The reality of U.S. constitutional law now is that it is whatever the Supreme Court says it is. It's a quite a different agreement. For some people, it's a, it's a step back. FanCon was produced by Orla Higgins with sound engineering by Andy Gaffney. The series was funded by Durham University and produced in conjunction with Birmingham University and Queen's University Belfast. The team at FemCon would like to thank our great contributors and all the feminists who have inspired us along the way. Thanks for listening.